What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Jason Williams. Um, I first came across Jason when I heard of his company, PRTI. And this is a company that takes waste tires or unusable uh, vehicle tires and basically turns them into fuel uh, to use to power Bitcoin miners to mine Bitcoin. And, you know, I think like many of us, but I'll, I'll speak for myself, I'm super interested and bullish on the potential for Bitcoin mining to kind of reshape the, the energy industry landscape in many ways. And uh, I'm, you know, so I'm very interested in all the different people and companies that are taking that solution and applying it to uh, inefficiencies or problems that exist in the energy industry around the world. And so that's what first caught my attention. Jason is also the co-founder of Morgan Creek Digital the, alongside Mark Yusko and Anthony Pompliano. He's had a very interesting career spanning a number of different industries, started his career in medicine, became an entrepreneur with kind of an urgent medical clinic franchise, expanded it to 140 locations, exited, got involved in angel investing, and just has done a, a lot of really interesting things. And so I thought that uh, he would be an interesting guy to have a chat with. Um, of course, we addressed you know, what's going on today with the coronavirus and the shutdown and all that, and uh, just in general had a, a, a really fun chat. So hope you enjoy. All right, man. Let's uh, let's dive in, and we'll uh, we'll take it as it comes. But first of all, you know, you were just mentioning, you know, how you know the busy day you've had. So I appreciate you making the time for this. Uh, I'm re I've uh, in the course of preparing for it, I've become increasingly more excited about talking with you. So thanks for coming on. That's my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, for those people that may not be familiar with you or your background, uh, I know you got your hands on a lot of different pies, but maybe just give them the you know, the concise Coles Notes versions of uh, who you are and, and your background? Yeah, so um, went to PA school. So I'm medically trained, practiced medicine for about 15 years. Uh, while I was at Yale University, came up with the idea for urgent cares or primary cares that would use PAs and nurse practitioners to do about 80% of what you find in a typical emergency department. So the non-life-threatening but urgent conditions uh, at one-tenth the cost. So there was a value proposition there, kind of a retail thesis as well. I dropped out of my residency, moved back to North Carolina, and started a company called FastMed. And I spent the next kind of 13 years uh, scaling that business up, uh, you know, from one employee to 1,400 employees, took it through three private equity uh, transactions, the last being in 2015, where I sold the company for about half a billion dollars to a Boston-based private equity firm called Abri Partners. Um, in late 2015, uh, Anthony Pompliano or Pomp and I started uh, Full Tilt Capital. So he had just left Facebook, moved back to Raleigh. That's where I live. And um, we raised about 18 million bucks uh, in our first fund. And we deployed that into 63 companies. Um, and I don't know, a few late stage pre-IPO companies. So like Lyft, Reddit, Airbnb, and SpaceX were some of those late stage pre-IPO companies. And then, you know, probably 58 companies you've never heard before. Um, that, that fund has returned about 10% of the, the uh, funds invested in it, had a few exits, had three or four companies go to zero. Um, while we were doing that fund, we saw a lot of talent and a lot of capital going into the blockchain space. So we decided to raise a $25 million fund that was specifically focused on blockchain technologies, infrastructure around those blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies. Um, before we got to the task of raising the capital, 
Mark Yusko reached out to Pomp uh, and I, and over a course of, uh, of many months and a number of meetings, we decided to join uh, Morgan Creek Capital Management and create Morgan Creek Digital, uh, which Pomp, myself, and Mark are all owners of. Uh, and we set out to raise, raise capital to invest with that thesis that I've already laid out to you. We, um, we ended up getting it oversubscribed, so the $25 million uh, innovation or, or blockchain opportunity fund uh, became a $41 million uh, fund, and that fund was anchored by five uh, institutional investors, which is an important moment. So we had uh, Wake, Wake Med, which is a hospital system, uh, Med Mutual, which is now Curry, which is an insurance company, uh, a uh, foundation, uh, a, um, a uh, university, and then a public pension fund, uh, the, the Fairfax Public Pension and the Police Public Pension Fund of Fairfax, Virginia. So it was a big event. They were the anchors, and we set off to invest that capital. We invested that capital in about 20 different companies, five fund of funds, and we took a crypto position, liquid crypto position in Bitcoin. Then we set out to raise our second fund, which is the Opportunity Fund 2. And so far, we've closed uh, about 70-plus million of that fund. And we've already started making investments there. So uh, I spend my days uh, managing money in the crypto space. And then I have a startup that uh, I started after FastMed that uh, built the first waste to energy cryptocurrency mine in the world. Yeah. And I, I, we're going to get into that for sure. But with the new fund, just to finish that point off, what kind of investments is it? You mentioned they've, you've started to make investments. What kind of investments are you making or have made thus far? Yeah, so the, the new fund is really um, is doing much of the same that we did in the first fund, which is taking a liquid position in, in crypto, specifically Bitcoin, and then following up some investments that we did in fund one that are we're kind of pressing our winners. So we've, we've written uh, second checks in two of our legacy investments, very larger checks, specifically in BlockFi and mm. Figure. Uh, and then we've taken uh, some new positions and some new companies as well. Yeah. Um, and what's, you know, you've got a, even just that, and I know there's more to it, but even just what you articulated just now in your intro, uh, you've got a, a pretty diverse background, right? You were practicing medicine and then you were, a, I guess, a medical entrepreneur, you know, with FastMed, and then you just went straight up entrepreneur and investing money. What was the... What was the internal process there for why you wanted to change things up and dip your toes in so many different arenas? Yeah, so I'll take you all the way back to kind of the investment like progression or my own progression in regards to, you know, I, I was one of those kids that was told go to college and get a high paying job, you know, and uh, it was like be a doctor, be a lawyer, you know, but, but, you know, go get a job that has some security. And I chose medical school and, and that route. And while I was there, realized that I was a sucker. You know, I fell, for, I fell for the biggest scam in the world. I took on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. You know, someone threw Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad at me and cash flow quadrants, and, and it just hit me like a brick in the head. Uh, I was like, man, I'm going to be trapped as an emergency room physician for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm going to get, you know, the big house, get married, bunch of kids, BMW, and it, my life is going to suck. I'm going to be a slave <laughs> trading hours for dollars. Yeah. So, you know, as fast as I could get out of that, I did. And that's why I dropped out of my, my uh, residency and ended up getting a loan from First Citizens Bank 
and buying a post office in 2001 and converting that into the first urgent care. That was the first fast med. And I literally traded my time to hire other people who would trade their time so I could get this multiplier effect of urgent care hours. And before I knew it, I had 1,400 employees, 125 fast med locations, and I was no longer practicing medicine. I was working on my business. So I went from being self-employed, the most dangerous place you could be, you get sick, you don't get paid, to being a small business owner, yeah, I'm making a little bit of money, I got some people working for me, you know, to being a real business owner, I'm working on my business, not in my business, to now being an investor. I've got passive income, active income, dividend income, real estate income, investment income, stable tokens, cryptocurrency, you know, and now I'm sitting here managing all that. That really started happening in 2010. Mm -hmm. When I got my first big check, I was able to step back and say, okay, I need to get my money working for me. Got to keep working on this passive income thing. Got some active income, got some real estate investments. Let's get slick. One of this is kind of a, excuse me, this is kind of a two-part question, but the one is, you know, you're doing your surgical residency, right? Which, you know, you, you've put a lot of time into getting to that stage. What was the decision like to actually, you know, because so Stop many out. people, so many people have found themselves in that position. They're like, no, nah, I'll just finish it off. So I got it in my back pocket. It's a safety net or whatever, but you decided to drop out. Drop out. Look, what was I, that like? Yeah, it was the hardest decision I had to make in my life. Again, I was programmed to do well in school, go, you know, go to college, get an advanced degree, get a high paying job. And it broke my mom's heart. You know, I got into Yale. I mean, I'm an average kid, average student, got in to a PA surgical residency at Yale and ended up dropping out. Uh, and it was the best thing I ever did. Like I literally said, this sucks. I'm getting angry. Everyone around me is angry and the debt's piling on. This is, this is dumb. I need to de-risk this. And how to de-risk it is having multiple revenue streams and uh, having all types of different income. Yeah. Not, not this trading hours for dollars. Yeah. That's a tough call, man. A lot, I know a lot of people face that one and, and, and don't have the, like, you know, the balls to make a call like that. Well, it's, but- it's timing. It's timing also. Like, you know, when you're 24, not married, no kids, you can make that decision. When you're 35, married, and have a two-year-old, it's harder. Yeah. When you're 40, have 12-year-old, you know, or God forbid, divorced, covering up half of your income. These scenarios just go really fast, and you've got to play it right. You know, you've got to say, "I'm going to be conservative. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to save, but I'm also going to take risks while I'm young." Yeah. This, uh, this might sound like a weird question, but it's coming to my mind as you're explaining this. And this doesn't apply to all people, of course, but I think it applies to many people where, you know, they go through life and as you become more competent and confident in a given domain, it integrates itself into your concept, perception of yourself more and more. It becomes your identity. That's who you are, that kind of thing. When you're saying that, you know, you were, you were practicing medicine and then you were working in a business as an entrepreneur, on a business as a business owner, investor and stuff, it does the perception of yourself have to continue changing as you make these things or is there a more foundational underlying sort of compass that kind of permeates each one of those things? Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant question and, and I'll answer it this way. When you're young, you don't know what you don't know and your charisma, energy, like just 
kind of cockiness or confidence, whatever it is, it drives you to do things that you will never do as you get older and start to really realize what you don't know, right? The more you know, the more you realize you don't know, and you start to tighten up. You start to, no, let me, let me manage my melting iceberg versus run off into the darkness, right? When I was younger, bang, always running off into the darkness. Run through that brick wall. Let's do it. Now, I still want to do that, but I'm like, man, I'm going to hurt my knee. Right. Yeah. It's a little different. It's a little different. I still want to bang on things, but I know the consequences better now. Yeah. And so, and we'll hop around a ton here and feel free to do the same, but taking it up to today, I know you're involved in a bunch of things. Just a final thing on, on Morgan Creek Digital. You know, you mentioned a little bit about that. What's the, the approach from, from that perspective? I know you, you've got another fund and you mentioned that you're making some investments. Is that, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies only, or do you have other investments in alternative currencies as well? Yeah, so we have a product, um, an index that we did with Bitwise. Mm-hmm. So it, it has, um, it's a market weighted average index of the top 10 cryptos. So that, that product's available for people if they want to invest in it. Beyond that, we're really making investments in infrastructure. So they could be agnostic to type of cryptocurrency, like I would say BlockFi. It has stable tokens, Ethereum, some other options, and Bitcoin, but it's really like a, uh, it's a it's a bank that offers essentially crypto investors banking functions. Yeah. Um, other than that, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're all Bitcoin based businesses. Again, for example, Figure, it does HELOCs uh, over blockchain, and they have their own native uh, cryptocurrency inside of it or their own token that mm-hmm. will become more obvious to people as they do research. Um, but, but our thesis is really infrastructure investing around blockchain and owning a liquid position in Bitcoin in particular, yeah. which is our, by far our largest liquid crypto that we own. And I know, well, I don't know, but from having seen you on Twitter, I know that you are seemingly, if not exclusively, highly, um, you know, mostly into Bitcoin. I see a lot of bullish no, Bitcoin tweets from you. What, what's your kind of personal approach to this, to this domain? Yeah. yeah, I mean, in terms of my personal investing, 98% of it is in Bitcoin. Um, I own stable coins. I would say our position is similar in terms of our liquid position. 99% of it is in Bitcoin from a fund perspective. Um, internally, we have intelligent discourse between Mark and Pop and myself around alternative or altcoins. I tend to look at them. So you, you've heard me recently start to talk about you know, uh, Thorchain and Rune or Decred, Tezos. You know, I'm, I'm interested in the technology. I'm still looking for, you know, the innovation around the periphery here. The kind of gold 2.0, Bitcoin, the, the initial blockchain, you know, I, I'm, I'm enamored with it. Uh, I'm fascinated by the vision and the work that was done there. Uh, but I think there's a lot of interesting things around the periphery. What I'm waiting for is for them to be, um, something more than a cognitive masturbation or some stupid white paper that someone's trying to show off in regards to their own intelligence, but really something that has, that has value and application and, um, and users and liquidity. So I'm, I'm waiting to see that. DeFi is really interesting um, to me. 
And I've already said right now, I've been spending a lot of time on, on ThorChain. I just got to ask, what is ThorChain? I've, I've never heard of it. So it, it's essentially um, uh, a decentralized exchange right. that has a, a very interesting application for Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to shill it here, but if you're interested, you know, do your own research, but it's a, it's an interesting, um, an interesting thesis and I, I'm, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Right. Um, bring it back to, to current uh, events. Uh, you know, obviously it's been a very eventful, uh, you know, last month, month and a half, two months. Uh, what, I mean, what's your, just give me your, your take on everything that's went down, whether as it relates to Bitcoin or just, you know, global market business and anything like that. What's your take on all this craziness? Yeah. So, I mean, just to give you an example of how wild this is, I mean, we, we were going through an exit with my second startup, you know, hundreds, hundreds of millions plus exit and had to shut down because the, the Fed and the state said, we are a non-essential business. Right. So I had to stop that process, send my employees home, fire some of my employees. And since March 18th, literally, we have been treading water. Then, you know, we applied for PPP and I watched a lot of our portfolio companies apply for PPP. And it's been a, a travesty. Like I'm heartbroken by how this thing has been handled. This lifeline of funding didn't get to a lot of the small businesses that needed it. You know, I'm not even griping that I didn't get that, that PPP, the two and a half months of expenses, payroll, et cetera, so I could preserve the 45 people that we had to let go. But when I see on TV someone like Shake Shack, a publicly traded company with thousands of employees, you know, uh, that, that outperforms the industry, the restaurant industry. Let me give you some stats. You know, we've got 58 58.9 million employees in small business. 47% of them work uh, uh, of the of the of the country's total uh, uh, employees are in small business. 47% of all of our employees are in small business. 15% are in the restaurant business. Um, you have operating margins in the restaurant space, and I I have a restaurant also for the last 15 years that we had to shut down. Mm -hmm. Again, heartbreaking, we were forced to shut down. That operate with margins between zero and 15%. The best in class restaurants will do 15% margins, 15% margins. Shake Shack does 25% profit margins. Publicly, a, a, public, a public business, they know they should never have applied for PPP. I have to watch them on TV behind me, Telling America that the CEO, I'm going to give the money back. I'm going to give the $10 million back. And, and in, like, it's virtuous, a virtuous activity, him giving the $10 million back. He should be fired. He should be fired for, for taking that lifeline away from companies that needed that money, that needed that money. You have, you have, you have restaurant workers that make between $2 and $7 an hour. You know, they're struggling to buy food, to pay their rent whatever. They needed that money. Shake Shack didn't need that money. Shake mm -hmm. Shack got that money because they have political connections, banking connections, high power lawyers, somebody in their finance department thought they were doing a good job by getting some free money. No, nah, they should be fired. You know, I wish I was interviewing on TV. 
And I know there are other ones. I know there yeah. are other ones. Yeah. You, you know, Pomp was telling me yesterday that and that an uh, that an overweight amount of PPP went to Washington D.C. based companies. Yeah, no shit. Why? Why? <laughs> Proximity to power, baby. Yeah, it's just it's all you know. I I, I hear Mark and and Max uh, uh, and Max yelling crony capitalism. And I, I just thought it was like old men yelling, crony capitalism. Like I never even looked it up. This is crony capitalism. Maybe I'd become an old man. I'm yelling crony capitalism. No, Max man. Kaiser, crony capitalism. Mark I'm... Yusko, you're right. This is crony <laughs> capitalism. It's made me crazy. <laughs> well, look, man, you're, you're right. I mean, if God, of course it's been crony capitalism and it's been that way for a long time. And look, I share that sentiment. My family's in the restaurant business themselves. And, um, but it speaks to... I mean, did you guys have to shut down? Yeah, or are you not... Yeah. yeah. There's it's a, terrible. There's, there's a couple that have remained open doing takeaway stuff, but, it, but, but the other ones are like yeah, full, full yeah, on let, shut down. Yeah, let me, let me qualify that. When I say shut down, I mean, we had 45 full-time employees in a 5,000 square foot Italian restaurant that we sent everyone home other than a pizza maker and crushed our revenue. That's exactly, our staff. That's exactly what they did. Yeah. Yeah, it's crushed. It might as well be shut down. They can't even pay their rent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And a lot, a lot of companies just like that aren't going to reopen after this. You know, they're done forever. Some will be able to uh, muddle through just to pay rent and open back up depending on how long this lasts. But, you know, it, it, it obviously speaks to um, the, how this system is structured and some of, it, if some of the flaws in this system. And that one of them, as you mentioned, of course, we, we don't have pure free market capitalism anywhere in the world. We have, you know crony zombie corporate socialism if anything and so look i agree that it's it's shameful that uh, you know maybe danny meyer got up there and tried to take that 10 mil and you know but at the same time if if there's if you're a business and there's free money to be had i mean look people are just going to make the rational calculation and say look if i have access to money in difficult times and i know they're big and everything but who doesn't want more money they're going to take it the problem is you know don't hate the player hate the game is is my response to that Look, you've made a great point, and Pomp and I were banging heads about this too. He's like, you know what? Uh, look at what the Boeing CEO said. Uh, I, need, I need a bailout. We mismanaged things. You shut us down. Travel industry's wrecked. Uh, we need some money. But I don't want a loan. I want free money. <laughs> and then the government says, well, we want a little equity position. No, I'm not going to take that deal. I loved what Mark Cuban said and what Shamath said. Go kick rocks. Yeah. Go kick rocks. Go get, go get more expensive money or the better money, but the government's not going to give it to you. You know, the government rolls over, gives them the money. You know, it's just, it's yeah. lame. So you're right. Boeing found the sucker in the room, the U.S. taxpayer, who put these guys in charge to make these decisions to, to, to kind of shore up their buddies. And again, I, I never understood the game like this because I've always been a hardcore free market capitalist. I never took like low interest loans. I never had any federal grants. I never had any of this nonsense. Now I'm sitting here going, save me, you know, yeah. save me government. It, it sucks. I hate it. Yeah. I hate the way this feels. It's horrible. And you know, in 2008 and even before that long-term capital management, whatever, uh, cause I think they received a bailout as well in the, in the late nineties. Um, but especially since 2008, uh, with what happened then, the moral hazard was established. So getting a bailout 
was literally baked into the business model of the of the country's largest largest corporations after 2008. If you were if you were Boeing, right after 2008, you say, okay, there's all this cheap money around. Great, let's borrow and let's buy back stock. Price goes up, we get our bonuses. Shareholders are happy, and if shit hits the fan, if we're a little bit too uh, aggressive with stuff here, then the government's going to come and bail us out anyways. So it, it's almost irresponsible for them not to abuse that system because they know they're going to get saved. And of course, the people at the top are the ones who derive the most benefit from it. So why wouldn't they make those decisions? That's why the whole fucking thing is corrupted. And, you know, I get, this is why I'm interested in Bitcoin, because I think it, it's a doorway to an alternative system. Uh, and one that is sorely needed. And the, and the reasons for why it's needed are becoming abundantly clear as a result of all this, uh, what's happening now. Yeah. You know, I, I, I signed up for masterclass since I've been sitting in this basement for the last uh, 33 days. And I, I took an economics class by Paul Krugman. And it was like an amazing, because I've, I've not been formally trained in economics, but this was really interesting. So when in 2008, when Bernanke turned on the money, the money printer, um, and quintupled the money supply, um, it didn't cause any inflation. So over the 10 years you look back, there was no inflation. And I was like, but that's what was supposed to happen, right? When you quintuple the money supply and the money kind of gets put into the, uh, into the system, the, 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 uh, it, it causes things uh, to be devalued and you get inflation. Um, the money never got into the system. And that's why we didn't have inflation into looking back 10 years. This time is going to be different, I believe. The money printer's running. I don't know how hard it's going to run. We've been internally saying 5 trillion, 10 trillion, 12 trillion dollars of money. I think at four o'clock today, if it already hasn't happened, the next PPP tranche may have been approved. And as I understood it, it was 300 billion to small business, some to hospitals, but it was about 500 billion additional money that was going to be, you know, put into the system. This time is different because the money's not staying on the balance sheets. It's actually being pushed in uh, this new money. So the money printer's running. And I, I'm thankful we have Bitcoin. This is why Bitcoin was made. 100%. You know, this is, this is it. You know, this is it. 120 days from now, when the minor puke happens, so minor capitulation happens, sell the news happens. The strong hands are in play. You get the supply demand shock of Bitcoin and it starts to go up. There's your chaos hedge. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm really, really bullish on that happening. Yeah, uh, I, I am as well. I mean, you never know what Bitcoin's going to do, obviously. But, you know, I think that that narrative, and it's just a perfect storm. It's seemingly right. It just seems like there's so many things that, you know, because in 2008, I thought, that, you know, that was big stuff was happening then, but they they managed to kick the can down the road again. But this time, I mean, where we are with rates, where we are with the amount of money printing, where we are, as you said, with the money going direct to people in, in the form of UBI and not just going through the banking system, where bonds are at, where we're, and it just this virus came in and squashed all demand. So it's, you know, this, the, there was, as you well know, I'm sure from talking to Pomp and your own, your own research, you know, there was a lot of cracks and stress in the system, you know, for building up for a while, you know, most obviously since last fall. And to have this come, and I, so many of us and in, in Bitcoin, you know, had been kind of anticipating a big event, but to have that already kind of perfect storm festering, and then you just shut off global demand. Like, I mean, 
it's, I, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy what's happening right now. And like you said, I mean, where else would you want to put your money? You know, a lot of people say, don't fight the Fed, you know, and if, if, if they pump enough money into the system, yes, equities will probably melt up and other things will, will inflate. But I can't think of a, a better time or reason to get involved in Bitcoin than what's happening right now. And it's a gift to people that are just coming to the space that it, the price is still depressed off its 20K highs. Yeah, and that, that's why I probably put myself way out on a limb. I keep saying exactly 120 days, 119 days. Like I'm using, you know, some pretty good models that seem to have held up um, to make those statements that I feel like we have 120 days to buy some cheap Bitcoin. But at, after 120 days, 99.9% .9 of everyone involved in this right now, this, this small community that's buying and talking about Bitcoin, they're out. They're priced out. It will be a Satoshi game at that point. You won't talk about buying a Bitcoin or owning Bitcoin. It'll be, it'll be way too expensive for anyone. Mm -hmm. um, one other point I wanted to make, um, you know, I don't know if you watch Barstool Sports, but uh, the founder and CEO, uh, Dave Portnoy, you know, at one point when he went through the public offering of, the, of their betting company, he had called himself the CEO of, a, of an unlimited money. And I thought that was like hilarious and, you know, full of hubris and nonsense. But recently, I saw a video of one of the Fed, uh, one of the Fed leaders talking about the fact that we can print unlimited money. Yeah, it's Kashkari, I think. Right, and we don't even print it. It's just a ledger. You just add zeros. Mm -hmm. You just add zeros. This is a whole new world. The money printer's not even running anymore. It's just a ledger. Just add a zero. You can't do that with Bitcoin. You can't add a zero to the ledger. Yeah. You can't, and, and that's what, um, uh, I don't know, it's super exciting. This, this is a crazy world we're living in right now. It's exciting but terrifying, you know, because obviously a lot of people who aren't savvy with regards to this stuff are going to be the ones that get hurt, right? Because, you know, where do they turn to? So, you know, I don't know what, what collapses first, the actual kind of mechanics of the system or the confidence in it, you know? And so, so many people don't know about this stuff that maybe the, the mechanics fall before the, the confidence does. But I think having, you know, a lot of these terms weren't around in 2008, right? Like fiat and money printer and, you know, all this kind of stuff and, and having the Fed chairs coming on and talking about unlimited liquidity. And we can just, you know, we can just, like you said, put a zero on our balance sheet and new money exists. This, this, and, and people are home now and they got lots of time to look into this stuff and, and people are focused on it because they, there's, it's so relevant to them because they're out of money, they're strapped for cash, they need to know what's going on. I, I'm obviously some, a lot of people are just on Netflix and, you know, doing nothing. But, uh, you know, I think people are starting to question this more. And I, I think if you, the Bitcoin rabbit hole is such that all you need to do is be kind of pushed down the top of it. And once you get pushed down the top of it, you're bound to continue digging because it becomes so interesting and rich and multifaceted. You know, it's a cursing and a bless, blessing, the complexities of the financial system and, and how Bitcoin works and is constructed. Again, as a layman, trustless, permissionless, inflation, deflation, you know, these are technical terms. You have to sit down and you have to understand them and how they all work together. Um, uh, but once you do, and if you care about having some control or understanding of what's going to happen to you 
or what you can make happen, you will dive down the rabbit hole, spend the time. Um, otherwise, you're going to be trapped like I am. You're going to think that going to college, getting a high-paying job that pays your 401k or whatever is the right move. And it's not the right move, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. It's not the right move. Uh, and so, you know, changing it up a little bit, one of the, speaking of kind of the rabbit hole of Bitcoin and how multifaceted it is, one of the things that gets me really excited, and I know it's exciting a lot of people recently, is the, you know, how Bitcoin will be used as a tool uh, in, in the energy markets, basically, and in, in, in kind of uh, how energy resources and Bitcoin will develop a synergy and to benefit both effectively, to benefit Bitcoin's decentralization and hash power and to benefit, you know, uh, renewable energy sources and energy efficiency and energy use and bring, bring, bring locked energy to market, et cetera. That's, um, so, you know, I think this is the point in the conversation where we break into uh, PRTI, right? Yep. Yep. So there's two really, very, really, really important points. And please, Please don't let me forget. I'm going to start with PRTI, but I want to make another point about, uh, about energy utilization and our legacy grid. Bring me back to that. Okay. So anyway, PRTI is, um, is a waste to energy business. We started it in 2015. It essentially takes whole scrap tires, car tires or light truck tires, puts it in a giant vessel, um, and with a patented technology, it heats, it heats the bottom of the vessel for about 20 minutes. And it creates coals or coke. Uh, and if you've ever barbecued, you know coals are red hot and they radiate heat up. The heat goes through the food, cooks the food. We do the same thing with PRTI's technology. And what we leverage, which is different and unique, is I use atmosphere to drive the reaction. So atmosphere has about 19, 20% oxygen in it. So I, I suck with vacuum pumps oxygen, that's the catalyst, through the bottom of that hot coke layer and I make it super hot with oxygen, and that heat radiates up. And at a certain temperature and pressure, tires turn from a semi-solid to a gas. So all I'm doing is radiating that heat up using the tires as fuel into that coke layer. So I got big stacks, 40, 50 feet of tires, whole tires, and the bottom is super hot. I'm dragging oxygen over it, and the tires are going down to the hot spot. And in a certain temperature zone, I'm making a synthetic gas and pulling that synthetic gas out putting it through a condensation reaction and making oil and synthetic gas. I can send the synthetic gas into a turbine or a reciprocal engine, make power, take the oil, put it in a, a turbine or reciprocating engine, make power. After 11 hours, I'm left with like a Coke or coal tire char, and it acts like a mid-grade Appalachian coal, which burns at about 10,000 BTU. I put that in my generator and make power, and then I sell the steel uh, for scrap at about $130 a metric ton. Um, they pay me four cents or so a pound for the tires. So I get paid four cents a pound for the tires, and then I make oil, synthetic gas, steel, scrap, and solid fuels. And then I can sell those to the market, not today. Oil's trading at minus 37 or minus $3 whatever, I can make power and use it for parasitic needs, drying wood, sell it to a cement factory, mine Bitcoin, mine uh, or run a uh, data center. Um, and that's what we do. 
So we have all of these levers we can pull on the back. I can sell steel, sell carbon, sell synthetic gas, sell oil, make power, sell it to the grid, make power, mine Bitcoin. And it's just arbitrage. So Does it make sense? Oh, 100%. Before I bring you back to this, the thing you want to remind, me, uh, remind you of, I just want to ask, which is the sales channel you use the most? Like, is it most profitable to sell to the grid, mine Bitcoin? You know, what's the most profitable way for you to sell that oil once you extract it? It depends where you are. So here in North America, uh, power is kind of cheap in certain areas. So here in North Carolina, I can sell power for like uh, three, four cents a kilowatt hour. So it's much more profitable for me to uh, mine Bitcoin. And there's a, a cracking spread on the price of oil. So if oil is above $25 a barrel, I can sell my oil into the oil blended fuel markets and make more money than mining Bitcoin. Once it drops below $25, $27 a barrel, I, I use it for uh, power generation. But isn't that amazing that you can have a power generating operation where Bitcoin is like your base income, right? So you, you plug in your miners there. And so that's like your minimum revenue. And then right. if, if market dynamics change and you can sell more turn, either to the grid or the oil market, turn them off and redirect it over there. Turn them off. Yep. And that, that is the segue into the next really big moment I wanted you to remind me of. Yeah, go for it. Our legacy grid is highly inefficient, highly inefficient. You know, all the power we generate, we probably capture 35% of the efficiency of our legacy grid, right? Nuclear, solar, wind, uh, fossil fuels, hydro, tidal, whatever we're doing to generate waste, to energy, biomass, it's about 35% efficient. Never before in the history of the world has there been a consumer that could actually use 100% of our potential energy production. That's computation or, 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 the, uh, or mining or, or our data centers. They could actually use it. We could actually put that power in and actually gain the efficiencies of our nuclear power plants, of the systems that we have in place, and actually gain the benefit of them. Um, but it's really an amazing opportunity. So really smart people are starting to think about that. And they went, huh, if I go out into the Permian Basin, or I go out to the wellhead and I, and I connect to your flare gas, right? Your flare gas, but I mine crypto off of it. You're going to gain some efficiencies. And when they started to really play out the thesis, there was a lot of efficiencies. So much so that these companies at the well, they'll give you the waste gas. They'll give you the waste gas. So now they don't have to build a flare. They have an emergency flare, but they don't have to run the flare. They can extract oil continuously because they don't have to deal with the waste gas. And then the, the guys who are really smart, they're taking the waste gas, they're combusting it and mining cryptocurrency off of it. Yeah. So you start to think about how to properly utilize the different systems we have that generate power. And it becomes a really amazing time where um, the power we do know and the way we've created it, there's some really cool ways to use it. But now miners are thinking about the cheapest ways they can make power. Like, how do I get power like at zero cost? There's PRTI, or one cent, two cent a kilowatt hour. You know, if I go to a hydro plant, maybe I can get power really cheap there. Solar, maybe I can build that there. Biomass, waste energy. It is driving innovation in low power production 
you know, and, and really capturing all of the efficiencies, CHP, combined heat power. There's all these really cool, smart ways that you can drive power. So you don't have to be in Mongolia dealing with Mongolian warlords to run a <laughs> cryptocurrency mine. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I said I was so excited by it, right? Because what does this, and you know, someone who's gotten a lot of uh, coverage and I think was one of the pioneers in this space was Steve Barber at Upstream Data in Canada because he was doing that. He was taking the flare and, and you know, putting Bitcoin rig, mining rigs. Uh, what, over. What, what, year was he, what, year, what year was he doing that? I think he started in 16 or 17. Yeah, I was before. Well, yeah, but <laughs> you're doing something different, no, right? No, but, but, well, no, not really because I had, look, I had a flare. I had a flare. Like I had a flare. The synthetic gas that I couldn't capture in oil, yeah. I had to flare it. And I was looking at that flare going, boy, that's three megawatts of power I'm sending into the atmosphere. That's yeah. just dumb. Yeah. This is dumb. But it's, it's crazy, right? Because for, the, for there now to be, wherever the power is, a, a minimum buyer. For, like, you know, if you're building a hydro dam, you build for excess capacity because the thing's going to be online for ages, right? If you can have a yep. buyer for that excess capacity from day one, yes, at lower rates, whatever. But it, it's, at least it's some extra revenue coming in to subsidize these things. And hopefully, you know, because we, we want to be using more power. I mean, that's like fundamental civilization 101. You know, the more power you use, the, the more advanced the civilization. But we just, you know, we there's some issues with the type of power we use and how we generate it and things like that. And it's, it's just so exciting that this whole new world of creativity for using what Bitcoin allows for to uh, extract and improve our energy systems is, you know, it's super exciting. So, yeah. So uh, that's the counter thesis to people who say, you know, proof of work is bullshit. It's inefficient, all that stuff. I disagree. I disagree. This is a second and third world opportunity to leapfrog traditional telephones, traditional banking, just as they did. They put in M-Pesa. You know, they have mobile, sophisticated mobile and 5G, 4G networks, very robust, more so than in the United States. They're going to be the ones who have decentralized power that's not dependent, right? You'll have, you'll have power stations like PRTI, not interconnected. Didn't go through the brain damage of doing that in the expense. They can generate power co-located, six megawatts all day long, base power, six megawatts. And that's a lot of power. It's about a 20-acre solar farm. Yeah. So it, correct me if I'm wrong, is there only one uh, PRTI factory right now? Yeah, right now. You know, that's where our fundraising was getting completed so we could go on a super, super growth mode. And that was all kibosh as a result of shutdown. Yeah. Coronavirus, the Fed. And then cr crushing the oil market. I mean, I've got things I've got to figure out now, thanks to, you know, the economic disaster that we're facing. Yeah. Can, can your method of extraction and that the process survive if you only ever uh, mined Bitcoin with the, with the uh, energy you generate? Yeah. We, we, are, we are not connected any longer to the price of, of, uh, of oil or getting paid to take trash. I could take it for free. Right. And so isn't that like extremely scalable? Isn't there junk tires? And I presume this process could be somewhat uh, altered in the future for other types of, of waste. That's correct. The patents that I've written are for, um, or waste. Uh, it's it, some of the patents are in synthetic polymers, but it talks about a process to break down uh, things with calories. Uh, but the answer is yes, highly scalable, highly profitable. Uh, 
but it needs people who are allowed to work. Right. Fuck. It's crazy, man. Yeah. And I'm, and by the way, I mean, it may be screwed up, you know, it may be screwed up. I, I lost like a lot of intellectual horsepower that I had to send away that I mm-hmm. hope will come back. PhDs, really smart people. They're gone. And so it, the, the factory is shut down right now. It's not, not operating. So I, I, uh, yeah, it's idle. Because you, you can't, right? It's, it's non-essential. No, it's nothing. Okay. Well, no, it's nothing. There's, there's nothing. Yeah. Man, that's, that's so tough. So in terms of if, you know, if the, if the go ahead to reopen comes in a month's time, what does your world look like? What's your top of your priority list? Well, we, we, we switch on our miners again. Uh, we start our power gen back. Um, and, and then we, we, we start scaling. So we close our funding round. Um, is, I mean, we're still trying to raise capital and close everything and, um, and then go on a, you know, super growth. Because I think it's a tremendous opportunity. Oil markets are decimated. You got some supply and demand issues that we could spend another hour talking about. Um, if you are fi- if you're taking physical delivery of oil right now, it's a liability. You probably, you know, I, I sent to my team this morning. Start thinking about oil as a waste stream. Yeah, you crazy, know, right? <laughs> think about this for PRTI. Think about this. I'll take your oil for free, or you'll pay me to take it, and I'll combust it and mine cryptocurrency. So we'll add it to, like I'll take tires and I'll take oil, because I have tanks, I have storage, and I have use. Yeah. If you don't have a use case, if you can't use the fossil fuel, you have to store it or sell it, you're dead. Yeah, you're dead right now. Yeah, and that's a perfect example. I know we're not, uh, it's not integrated enough right now to pull this off, but just look what just happened with uh, you know, the, the futures contracts and oil and the shortages of, of storage and all that kind of stuff. If this infrastructure was in place, you know, to know that you would have a use for it almost no matter what in, in, mining, in mining Bitcoin, then, you know, presumably you wouldn't have seen the kind of dynamics that we saw play out. That's right. People got an education in the two people who participate in oil. There are people who take physical delivery and financial people who trade oil. Yesterday or today, the financial people had to take physical possession of their oil. Mm-hmm. And because they had no place to put it, they got gave, wrecked. Gave they away. got wrecked. Wrecked. Minus 37 you know, dollars a barrel or whatever. That's a thousand. I think that's on a thousand, a thousand barrel contracts to physically, to physically deliver. That was like a $37,000 bill that you have to pay me to take it. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. <laughs> I think uh, I think that's right. Um are there any competitors? Like are there anybody else doing the same thing as PRTI? No, there there are no natural competitors with the technology I have. We compete against landfills, people who shred, and people who resell tires. So illegal resellers, shredders that make uh that make rubberized surfaces and landfills that bury uh, partial tires or whole tires. You mean you're competing for the tires to, to purchase them? They pay more sort of thing? No, uh, we compete for the tires. So you right. know, all, of, all of those groups get paid uh, for tires, but there's handling inefficiencies that my competitors have that I don't have. Right. Do you think this is something that, uh, this is my last question about this, but like I said, I'm super fascinated by, are, 
globally, are there any other people doing, you know, we know the, the natural gas and the, this is kind of changing the oil industry. Any other technologies you're aware of that are kind of helping to access this uh, locked up energy via mining Bitcoin? Yes. I mean, look at what Genesis mining is doing. So, right, they're doing a lot of geothermal uh, in, uh, in Iceland. Um, again, maximizing the potential of an enormous energy source. You know, they're not, nobody's building lots of houses in the places that they're Genesis mines, right? So yeah. now you have a new buyer, a new potential. There's a huge wealth creation, tax opportunities, all of that. So look, building major data centers, whether they're Bitcoin miners, GPU miners, CGI rendering, driverless cars, you know, surveilling everyone who's come in contact with someone with COVID, whatever the use case is, computing is the new oil, computing is the new arms race, those who have the most computing and control of computing are going to rule the world. <laughs> if you have control of the ledger, you can make infinite money. So you're the CEO of money, right? <laughs> and if you're the world's world reserve currency holder, you're the king. You have the belt, right? And if you want the belt, you want to be the man, you've got to beat the man, right? So there's the U.S. They're saying, come for my belt because I got the army. It's horrible. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> a horrible thing. Ric Flair. You want to be the man, you got to beat the man. I love it. I learned that in business school. I didn't go, I didn't go to business school. I'll, uh, I'll ask a, a, a follow-up and highly related question to Ric Flair. And uh, that is, uh, tell me about quantum biology. Nice. Um, <laughs> you know, th th actually, this, this came from an investment thesis. I, I, I was looking at investing in this company called Quantum Technologies. And um, I'll get into that business in a second. But quantum biology is a new science. And it really came through the exploration of how this certain bird migrated. And they found that migratory patterns can be from memory. They can be from scent. They can be like some biologic kind of predisposition. Um, they can be uh, from a number of ways. But this one bird actually could sense the magnetic pole of the earth. And that's how it migrated along the polar, uh, the, the polarization of the earth. Uh, so it was, a, it was sensing magnetic fields. So what these really smart scientists started to look at is every, every particle has a charge or every, everything has a charge. And if something is charged optimally, it becomes more available, right? So if it's charged wrong, it resists. If it's charged right, it attracts. And they started to explore, if I could take Motrin, for example, and I could charge the, the Motrin molecule in such a way, could I make it more bioavailable? And if you think about why that's important, if I can make a drug more bioavailable, I can decrease the dosage of the drug and the frequency you take it so that the effect of the drug goes up, but the side effect profile goes down, right? Motrin, 800 milligrams, TID, three times a day, has side effects. If I can reduce the dosage to 200 milligrams once a day, but get the effect 
of Motrin 800 milligrams TID, it becomes a very important scientific breakthrough. Through. These guys did that. They have a patented technology. Now you apply that to food. If I can charge food, I can make food more bioavailable so that it becomes more efficient in your body. So I can eat less of it and, it, it, and I can use it better. You, you just kind of play that with drugs. Uh, again, uh, if you're using marijuana legally or illegally, if I could decrease the dosage of it and actually increase the availability of it, take away the side effects of paranoia or whatever, you become, it becomes more efficient. Really interesting science. One I spend a lot of time um, researching. Uh, look up quantum technologies. They've got some CBD products. I'm shilling, but I, in, a, in full disclosure, I'm an investor uh, in that business and that technology. Um, I've heard you talk about, I think it was on an earlier episode of uh, Pomp's podcast, but, uh, and it's, you know, I've been in, in the, in, in very interested in health and wellness for most of my life. And so I know this is kind of trendy right now, but I am and have always been interested in kind of routines that allow you to feel your best and as a result, perform your best. And I know, uh, you know, keto is very popular, but I, I heard a reference to that on, on a show you did. So uh, one of the, the most interesting piece I'm interested in, though, and the one that I found the most impactful uh, when I've, um, you know, adhered to that protocol is just the level of mental clarity that that comes with it. Like, you know, maybe you lose some nagging body fat and maybe you don't get the afternoon crash or whatever. But one of the, the things that it's almost, uh, you know, you can't miss it is is the focus. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to uh, it, it, or if you're not still doing that, but if, if you're still kind of keto and focusing on that kind of a protocol for your diet. Yeah, very much so. You know, what, what happens to you as you have these conversations where you reflect on your life and people actually care at all about what you say? And I appreciate that, that anybody's listening to this. You start to, you start to rationalize or reflect on your own behavior. One of the things I started to think about was the fact I wasn't sleeping well at night. Um, I would wake up about two o'clock in the morning. And I would be so awake, I'd have to get up, maybe read a little bit. And then I'd start to fall back asleep around 4.30. And then around 2 o'clock every day in the afternoon, I would crash, literally crash. Like I was, if I was driving, your life was in danger. If I was at work, I'd have to put my head down or I'd be like bobbing asleep. Um, I had convinced myself that I was bimodal. I'd done research into this, that there are certain people that genetically, you know, it goes back to when... We had to stoke the flames when we had fire, uh, wood-burning fireplaces. We'd have to put more heat on, so we'd wake up in the middle of the night and do these things. You know, I, I came up with these wild rationalizations of, of what was going on. What was really going on? I ate like shit, and I didn't sleep well. You know, and I wasn't eating foods and optimizing myself for kind of the activities that I was going after. I played sports, super competitive, um, still did exercised every day, one or two hours a day. And I was just tired. I was just tired, right? So um, my wife had been doing keto for about a year and a half before I even started to pursue it. But I, I had like a in-house expert. So she sat me down, said, here's what you need to do. Uh, we figured out um, kind of a fasting regimen for myself. So I, I fast for about 12 to 16 hours a day that I eat, I haven't had anything to eat all day today simply because I've been busy and I'm still fine. I feel a little like uh, agitated, but beyond that, I'm not wrecked and tired and like my energy level still really high because I'm not, I don't need a candy bar right now. 
you know, to keep going. All I've had is a cup of coffee with almond milk in it um, and water. Um, so ketogenic diet, been doing it for a few years. Um, I eat bacon and steaks and Waffle House. I joke about Waffle House, but in Franklin County, I didn't have access to cook my own meal for lunch when I came off my fast. So I headed into a Waffle House and I asked these nice ladies and men, tell me, tell me where do you get your eggs? They said, hey, man, they're from a local farm. I said, what about this, the, the meat? Oh man, this is all high quality stuff. You know, we don't use hormones and stuff. People don't even know that about Waffle House. They think <laughs> I'm eating some like fast food garbage. You know, it's actually pretty darn good. The only thing that sucks is they use like a vegetable oil. Yeah. But I got them to use butter. I just asked them, I said, hey, when I come in and I have like six eggs and three pieces of bacon, will you just make it with butter? And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, and awesome. I don't, yeah. So look, I eat at Waffle House every day. I drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee in the morning. Um, and man, like, Feeling I, good. I put, yeah, I put me up against me when I was 20 any day long, any, any day, man. I'm like this year, my goals are uh, max bench 325 pounds, squat 450, you know, be able to do 25 pull ups in sets, 25, 25, 25. And those goals are way better. I played college football. I didn't bench 300 pounds. I'm telling you, my skill test for wide receivers when I was in college at Methodist, I think I had to bench 185 as many times as I could. I probably could do it six times. If I couldn't bench now, put, put Dude, 185 I, I, on there. I'm more impressed by the 25 uh, chin-ups back no, then. No problem. 25 pull-ups on whatever you got. That's on a bar, on a tree <laughs> limb. But I'm saying, man, like – that's the difference. It's like now as I've gotten older, I want to be able to move my body weight around. I want to eat well. I want this thing to work because I smashed it up. I smashed it up. I abused it my whole life. You know, I want this thing to work well. Uh, I want to have good people around me, good friends, family, good business partners. I want to do things that have meaning, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency investing, healthcare investments. You know, I want to help people. And, uh, you know, because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. Totally. I don't even know if keto works. It may be killing me. Yeah. But, man, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. And I think a, a lot of the people I speak to feel similarly in that, you know, the new drug is feeling great and taking that feeling and putting it towards things that you find meaningful. You know, whatever, whatever domain, business, art, relationships, whatever. But just being, you know, having that clarity of mind, that strength of body, that, you know, that sense of peace that comes with knowing that like, you know, the fuel is good and you're, you're rested and you're all that shit so that you can engage in the world on your best terms. Right. And I think uh, compared to that, you know, and don't get me wrong. I drink sometimes I have the odd beer here and there and, sure. and that kind of thing. But compared to that, uh, you know, what I just described, you know, spending every Friday night out with your, you know, getting drunk or, you know, put it, polluting your body with all sorts of shit. Just, it doesn't make that much rational sense to people. Once you start to feel what it can feel like. Yep. Look, I hate cliches and these little sayings, but I say them all the time. Like you are defined at what you do between Friday at 5 PM and Monday morning. Like I really do. It tells me the kind of person you are. Right. If you go out to the club and drinking all weekend and watch sports all day and you don't invest in yourself on the weekend because you may be trading time for dollars during the week, man, you're just wasting it. You're, yeah. you're totally wasting it. You know, you should be going after it. 
And that was one of the things, you know, when I, the first part of my career, I was in working in wealth management in Shanghai and, um, you know, I was miserable. I hated the job. I, uh, well, that was basically, I liked the city. I hated the job. And, uh, you know, I would work all week, you know, late hours and, you, you know, a bunch of degenerates really that I was working with. So we'd go out for a drink, post-work drinks most nights. And then on the weekend, we'd just turn it up way up. And my weekend would just be a blur, you know, get completely blasted, spend the day on the couch, you know, junk food, junk food, junk food, more beer, you know, you know, more booze. And, uh, you know, I reached a point where I was, you know, I hate to, I hate to even admit this, but this is the truth. I, w- I was in bed one morning, hung over, and I just you know I, that urge to vomit came to me before I could get to the the bathroom. And I leaned over my bed and, and puked on my bedroom floor. Yeah. And I'm lo- I'm looking down at the the pile of puke, and I was just like, "What the fuck are you doing, you loser? You're a fucking loser. What are you doing?" And uh, you know that was what it turned around. I was like, "All right." From that moment, I was like, "Okay, weekends are for me to get." you know, on top of my shit, you know, I'm going to, I want to be productive on the weekends. I want to get fit. I want to work out. I want to work on side projects. I want to spend time in nature, whatever it was. And and that was a huge turning point for me. But um, Uh, congratulations for that, because most people aren't smart enough to do what you did. Most people are dumb, lazy, rationalize away everything. Not, you know, I can't do it. You know, they have a can't do, can't be attitude. Congratulations. Because again, it's not typical. It's not typical what you did. Yeah, I I agree. I you know I think lazy. Of course, people are dumb, and I say it all the time. But lazy, lazy, and apathetic really gets people. You know those yep. two th- those two things. Yep. Um, all right, Jace, do you have? I, I usually I run through a, a rapid fire sequence of questions right at the end. You down for that? Let's do it. Cool. So any of these, the first part you can uh, you can skip uh, or answer how, however long is, or however short as you like. And the first one is, what is money? What is money? Mm-hmm. Well, any, anything, that, uh, anything that could be used to transact. If you had to explain Bitcoin to a 10-year-old, what would you say? That's magic internet money. What does Bitcoin succeeding look like to you? My grandmother has Bitcoin. <laughs> What's your best uh, or your favorite resource for learning more or keeping up to speed on Bitcoin? I like podcasts and I think Travis Kling is smart. One piece of advice you'd give to someone just entering the space. Try to buy some Satoshis. Great advice. What movie or song is most related to Bitcoin in your opinion? Big short. Can Bitcoin be stopped? If so, what is Bitcoin's biggest vulnerability? If not, why not? It's a tough one. Uh, I thought a lot about this. You know, I, I think it can be seized because anybody can have a gun put to their head. You know, uh, if you give up the if you give up the passcode, you can get it. Um, enough pressure, you'll give up your Bitcoin because it's happened already. I mean, they've they've seized Bitcoin from criminals, so it is seizable. Um, the governments can ban it and make it really hard to transact, so it goes black market, uh, and that will stop adoption. Um, those are the things I worry about. And just to interrupt this rapid fire sequence, and I know it's a, a big, huge story and you're, you're more than welcome to pass if you're uncomfortable with it or whatever, but I know you've had some personal security concerns around this kind of stuff. 
uh, how has that shaped your approach to your own security? And let's just keep it around, I guess, Bitcoin security rather than the whole the whole shebang. As I as I understand it, my lawsuit against AT and T, all seven claims that I've made, they they tried to get uh, thrown out of court and they've lost. So I'm interested to see how this plays out. I have an active lawsuit against AT and T, mm-hmm. which I can't get in the specifics, but there is a if you want to search it, it's public because they lost on all counts so far. Um, OPSEC is gonna become paramount through the halving 120 days out because the hackers are gonna show up again. Anything of value, they're gonna come after. Once Bitcoin starts to show value again, they're gonna come back. So every idiot and asshole on the planet is gonna try to SIM swap you, steal your email, steal your accounts, all of this nonsense. Um, so you need to be prepared now, you know, uh, it's really, it's really, really important um, that you think about how you protect your passcodes, passwords, private keys. Um, Any tips? All of that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of smart people. I think Jameson Lopp spent a lot of time thinking about operational security and he's written about it in um, a lot of medium posts. I would go there. That's what I've used as the core thesis to protect myself and my family, mm-hmm. you know, uh, death threats, kidnapping threats, all of that. You just have to decide, you know, what kind of guns you want to have. <laughs> as he does a double bicep pose for those only listening. Um, what is something about Bitcoin you don't understand that well, or you'd like to spend a little more time on? Yeah. So DeFi, I think is super complicated. The terms that they're using are again, the next level. I don't understand slippage. You know, some of the contracts uh, and the nuances of them, some of the hacks that have happened recently have led me to pause. Again, we just had a $25 million hack in DeFi. But that's not on Bitcoin, right? No, but they're migrating Bitcoin into DeFi. So I'm, you know, I'm really interested in that. You know, these stranded assets that don't, that don't work other than their appreciation or depreciation, Uh, aren't that attractive to me, although I am an investor in Bitcoin. I'm more interested in Bitcoin while I hold it working for me. So that's why I like things like BlockFi, pays me interest on Bitcoin. And I think DeFi is starting to build systems where you can do that. Um, But they're very complicated and I have to spend a lot of time researching it. You know, um, so those are the things that I'm spending time on. Yeah. When, if ever, do you think the first central bank will uh, add Bitcoin to the reserves or, and or will they exist in 20 years, do you think? Yeah, yes, they'll exist in 20 years in 2021. What have you learned about yourself or how have you changed, if at all, uh, as a result of you know, learning about and interacting with Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I went through exactly what I was saying. Um, your listeners should go through if they're interested in Bitcoin. I didn't speak this way four years ago. Right. Now, I, I was an entrepreneur, bootstrapped companies, and I understood medicine. Now, I'm a professional manager of money and could hold my own with people who spend their lives thinking about this. The fact that I can even be a partner of Mark Yusko is incredible to me. <laughs> I mean, when I met him, I had a reflective vest on and a baseball cap, a giant beard and a mullet. <laughs> And he, you know, he saw something in me. It's crazy. (laughs) 
Uh, what is your most controversial or contrarian view or opinion? If nothing on Bitcoin, any subject is fair game. Yeah. Uh, so in Bitcoin, I, I've been saying for at least six months that the halving is a non-event, that it's all priced in. Uh, so the first halving, this halving, excuse me, is priced in. And I expect Bitcoin to be around 6,800 and puke. There's going to be two minor capitulations and one sell the news puke. And once we go through that, strong hands will be in control. And 120 days or so from now, from this day, you're going to see the supply demand shock hit and Bitcoin will move. Do you have a Bitcoin price prediction for At that time? End of 2021, let's say. End of 2021. Yeah, you got Bitcoin 100,000 or higher. What if we're wrong? Will this change anything about your outlook on the world or how you orient yourself or your businesses, your life? Yeah, I mean, I would have lost significant wealth. I would have wasted, you know, half a decade on a, on a thesis that was wrong. And, um, and uh, I, would, I would have lost a lot of money. So that's, what, that's, not what, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to make people money. I'm here to, uh, to, to protect, um, protect people's futures. And I, I take that responsibility, you know, uh, hot, uh, it's very important to me. <clears throat> What's one question, if any, you'd like to see added to this list that I would uh, ask other guests? Um, look, I, I think it was a, a pretty good list. I mean, I'm always interested in what people do when they're not working. Uh, I, I think that that may be interesting because, you know, I don't want to come across as some like cyborg who, you know, only eats bacon and, you know, sleeps 10 hours a day and just work, you know, that's not me. I, I'm an idiot. I like to play soccer. I like to lift weights. I like to joke around. You know, I wish I was funnier. I would have a podcast telling jokes, but I'm just not that funny. <laughs> that, that's like, that would be like amazing to me. Yeah. All right, last part. This is a word association. So I'll say a word. You tell me the first one that pops in your mind. Democracy. America. The Lightning Network. Jack Mahler. Government. Ripoff. Human rights. Important. Violence. Terrible. Trump. Orange. Ego. Suppress it. FOMO. I'm feeling it. Wealth. It's important. Privacy. Super important. Hate speech. It's terrible. Gold. It's important. Guns. They're important. Come on, give me something other than important. Use that four times. It's <laughs> the first thing I was thinking about. It's like binary to me. Look, I like guns. All right, all right, I'll take that. Uh, revolution. Uh, Rage against the machine. That's all I can think of. Socialism. Cuba. Family. Love. Inequality. I, I, I'm just totally blank. I don't hell. want to make something up. Hell, like heaven and hell. Hell. S scary. Liberty. I don't know. That just felt good. <laughs> and Bitcoin. Yeah, amazing. 
Jace, uh, you're a super interesting guy, and I'm sure we could talk for uh, a lot longer than it, than this, and hopefully one day we'll have the chance to do it uh, face-to-face. But until that time, uh, I do appreciate you taking the time. I know uh, you mentioned you did another pod earlier today, and so maybe your voice is getting a little hoarse. But uh, before we sign off, did you want to direct people anywhere to if they want to learn more about you or any of the stuff you're up to? Yeah, check me out on Twitter, jwilliamsfstmed. And uh, if Black Rifle Coffee or anyone knows them, I want a franchise. I'm ready to build. I'm going to come out of this basement. I want a franchise. I want to open up a Black Rifle Coffee shop. Let's go. Where are they from? I like, heard, I like heard, guns. Uh, I like guns. <laughs> Flexing again. Where are they from? I've, I've heard them before. Are they, is that? I don't know where they're based. Is it a know, UFC fighter? Military group. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I'm, we're connected to Wounded Warriors Foundation. Pomp served in the military. When I trained as a PA, I was at, uh, at Fort Bragg at Womack Army Medical Center. So we, you know, I've got a fond spot in my heart for, uh, for people who serve in our military. I don't like war, though. Nice. Yeah, I agree with you there. All right, man. Well, look, I wish you the best in, every, in, in future endeavors and seeing your way through this mess that we're currently in. I'm sure you'll find your way. And, uh, yeah, look forward to speaking again in the future, man. Thanks, buddy. Take care, brother. Later.